If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The world economy is slowing down, and the Canadian economy is slowing down. Uh, that is the natural, indeed, the intended consequence of the interest rate increases by the Bank of Canada. And it was important for me today to be candid about that with Canadians. That so was earlier today, uh, Canada's uh, Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister, Chrystia Freeland, um, making an observation that I think has been made many times already, that uh, indeed we are headed toward an economic slowdown, possibly even a recession. And to some extent, the interest rate increases from the Bank of Canada, expect another one next week, uh, are playing a role. I mean, obviously, interest rate hikes in terms of addressing inflation are meant to tamper demand. I mean, demand and supply are out of whack, and uh, that's, that's produced these high levels of inflation. Now, we did see today the latest numbers from StatsCan. The uh, year-over-year increase in the consumer price index in September was 6.9%, uh, down ever so slightly from 7% the month before. Now, if you look at what we've seen in recent months, you see some signs that things are starting to turn in the right direction. However... You know, it was an eye-popping number we saw today uh, for food inflation. Over 11% was the year-over-year increase, so running a lot hotter than the overall inflation rate. So like I say, we're expecting a, a further rate increase from the Bank of Canada next week. But uh, then what? How do we navigate the continuing challenge of inflation with what appears to be um, the eventuality of, of an economic slowdown in Canada? How does government fiscal policy need to navigate all of that? Uh, the finance minister talked today about the importance of being fiscally responsible, which is true. Whether this government has been is an open question. Uh, but we had the International Monetary Fund uh, last week basically warning governments around the world that you need to be careful with your spending so we don't compound the inflation problem and, and force the banks to have to go even more aggressively on interest rate hikes. Joining us for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Ian Lee, Associate Professor of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure, Rob. So not a lot of encouraging news for consumers uh, today between you know inflation still still running high, yeah. uh, the economic slowdown that the finance minister confirms is, is basically uh, all but certain. Uh, what do you make of it, first of all? Um, I, I'm gonna. I want to put a frame onto this because I think it's very important. And by the way, I'm nonpartisan. Don't donate money to any political party, and I don't consult anybody. So, and I'm tenured, so I can speak truth to power. <laughs> I have been very critical of this government. I now applaud her for her candor today, yeah. and I'm referring to our finance minister. I was very critical for the past three years of both our fiscal and monetary policy. We put way too much. Uh, fiscal stimulus into the system. Be, uh, and no, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have helped people that needed help. Of course we should. Did, should. Uh, but we put way more than that. We know that. We put so much stimulus into the system that the bank account, $300 billion, ended up in savings accounts in banks because we could not spend it. It was that. That's how excess the stimulus was. And on the interest rate side, we drove it down far far too low, down to one quarter of one point, which I remind everybody for the last three years was lower 
than the Great Depression. We never drove rates down to a quarter of one point. Yeah. We overdid it. They panicked in Ottawa, where I've lived all my life, and they said, where well, the economy's going over the cliff, which it wasn't. We've had far worse. I lived as a banker, a mortgage manager in 1980. I was at BMO, main office Ottawa, when interest rates, inflation hit 14%. Interest rates hit 20%. And, and so we've gone through a lot worse, and no, we didn't fall over the cliff and disappear. Okay, that was then. We made some very bad mistakes at that time, which has exacerbated the inflation. It didn't cause it. The supply chain interruptions and the pandemic, the pandemic leading to the interruptions, was what caused it. But then what we did is we made it uh, much worse, and that allowed it to become embedded. Okay, that's behind us. Now what are we going to do today? I, I've been uh, uh, strongly supportive of the Bank of Canada for making up for its past mistakes. It drove the rates too low. Mm -hmm. Now it's got to, and this is, I believe what they're doing is a tacit, unspoken acknowledgement and admission that they've messed up, and now they're fixing it. I think they're going to go up another three quarters of a point in the next week or so. I think that, I still think interest rates are going to have to go into the fives. Uh, to break the back of inflation. And for any of your listeners who say, I don't know what he's talking about. Interest rates do not affect. Why would that have put up and infl- get rid of inflation? I lived through 1980. And we, they drove the rates up to 20%. And I can assure you, when rates went north of about, if I recall, 13%, customers stopped walking in the door. Who on earth was going to come to the bank and get a mortgage at 13 or 14? High interest rates really cool the economy. They slow everything down. And yes, probably produce a recession. I'm not denying that. It's probably going to happen. I think it's going to happen. That's the price we have to pay for our overindulgence in the last three years. But it's going to cool down the economy. It's absolutely essential for one reason. And, And Macklin gave a speech last week in Halifax. The alternative is worse. High inflation, where it becomes embedded, which you see in many developing countries, is, is catastrophic. It just destroys. It destroys capital investment. It destroys savings. And it falls worst on low-income people. So now they're finally going in the right direction, and at least on the monetary policy side. They're putting up interest rates, and it is going to cool it down. And we will. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, let me be very blunt, we're going to have to go through hell for the next year or so. The, uh, the forecast from the PBO, from finance, from IMF, are in 2024, will have inflation back down, and supply chains will likely be back in balance by 2024, down to about the 2 to 3% range. But we've got to get from here to there, and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be, to use the colorful metaphors, there's going to be blood on the floor. But we're going to get there. Right, which means the idea of a soft landing, you know, trying to not navigate that. both avoiding a recession and taming inflation, that, that's not in the cards then. I don't believe so. I don't. I think that what happened, and just everybody understands, I'm not sitting here and saying, whoopee, whoopee, you know, people are getting hurt. That's not my point. Yeah. My point is we made some, and I've been saying this since 2020, we made some serious mistakes in driving the rates down so low because what did we do? We incentivized everybody to go out and borrow, borrow, borrow because well, the money was essentially free. Mm-hmm. We even had ministers saying, now is the time to borrow because the money is so cheap. It was embedded. It was driving people 
to become, uh, to spend like there was no tomorrow. You know that great line from the from the Beach Boys: "Spend, spend, spend, till <laughs> Daddy takes the T-bird away." Uh, and so, and we did, and we did, and we drove house prices through the roof to levels that are uh, not uh, val- not legitimate, meaning they're they're overvalued. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of this was we did it to ourselves, uh, and and now we got to fix it. And unfortunately, the the tool that is the most efficacious, the most effective, are interest rates. And it's not just everyone says, oh, what about the homeowners? That's the least of our concerns. And whenever I say that, people get upset with me. I go look at the data, and I'll I'll give it to you very quickly because it's very important. When I was the mortgage manager, because it's always been reported for years and years and years by law, the delinquency ratio, which is a very good measure of how badly things, how bad things are. And in 1980, when rates hit 20%, the mortgage rate, delinquency rate of Canadians, whole country, went from one-half of 1% all the way up to 1%, which meant that 99% of Canadians continued to make their mortgage payment. Right now, today, 2022, the delinquency rate is one-fifth of 1%. It's almost zero. So my point is, I'm not worried about people losing their houses. First off, they got lots of equity. Secondly, they're insured. If you have a high ratio of mortgage, it's insured by CMHC. So any losses will fall on the taxpayers of Canada, which means the government of Canada. I'm, I'm much more worried. Of, you know, there's going to be defaults on credit cards. There's going to be defaults on utility bills because consumers are rational. You're not going to default on your rent or your mortgage because you know you're going to lose where you have to live. Whereas you, it's much more rational and prudent to say, well, I'm going to default on a credit card because there's no security on a credit card. There's no collateral. They can't take my house. They can't take my car. And, and so that's what's going to happen. But people are going to lose their jobs. Some are going to lose their jobs. But before you think I'm really giving a real downer here to everybody, I think this recession is going to be far more gentle than the recession of 1980, which was the deepest and worst recession in the history of our country since the Great Depression. We're not going to see anything like that because we're not going to go to double-digit interest rates. There's going to be a recession in, in 2024, 2023, excuse me. It's going to cool things down for sure, uh, and it's going to bring supply and demand into balance. But I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as bad as people think. It's going to be bad. I mean, recessions are always bad because, you know, some businesses fail. They go to business. Some people lose their jobs. But I, it's not going to be like, uh, as I said, 1980 or some of the other bad, very bad recessions. It's going to cool things down, and it's going to bring down house prices, which are seriously overvalued in certain parts of the country. As for fiscal policy, we, we heard the uh, finance minister today. I mean, talk about the importance of fiscal responsibility, whether they deliver. I guess, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But what does the situation demand in terms of responsible fiscal policy from government? There's going. To, I, I'm glad you asked that question because on the interest rate side, I think it's quite clear to everybody. You know, the interest rates have to go up. And, and by the way, at 3.25, if they go to four, that's still incredibly low. I mean, I bought my first house, and, and mortgages were 10.5, and I thought I got a bargain. And then they went a lot higher. So when people say, "Oh my goodness, the world's coming to an end at three and a half or four percent interest rates," listen, they're that's downright cheap. So I'm not saying I want to pay more. I'm just saying let's put it into perspective. Three, four, five percent money is still very, very cheap money. Okay, it's just barely above the neutral rate. But let's go to the fiscal policy side because this government has been very, very, very um, uh, keen to to pump money into the economy, and we pumped gargantuan amounts. And there's a temptation for this government to spend yet more. Every time they hear of any problem, the first thing, their, their instinctive reaction is, let's go spend some more money. And I hope that Christy Freeland 
can hold the line in the cabinet so that every time someone jumps up with a yet, oh, we got to spend more money for this person or this person or this cause of that, we're already spending $400 billion in our country. And, and one more quick point, Rob, because I do a lot of research in StatsCan. I pour over StatsCan data all day long. Uh, because I, that's the source of truth for me is the actual that's why they have a budget and an act of parliament uh, to collect the statistics when all this talk in the last three years uh, it was in all the media across our country the safety social safety net of canada has vanished and i was sitting there tearing out my hair i was practically just having a meltdown i looked up the data the, the actual data of our country in 2019, last year, immediately before the pandemic, and the government of Canada and the 10 provincial governments, so an aggregate, federal and provincial, were spending $500 billion on the social safety net, which was 25% of Canadian GDP. And just so everybody knows, I'm not playing games with numbers. The social safety net I defined using those numbers that I looked up as public health care in Canada, and all income support, including old age pensions, GIS, social assistance, welfare, subsidized housing, uh, unemployment insurance, and thirdly, public education. So public education, public health care, and income support came to $500 billion. And people said it vanished. It, it, it disappeared. It collapsed. We never stopped paying old age pensions during the pandemic. We never stopped paying guaranteed income supplement. We never stopped social assistance programs. We didn't close down the hospitals. We didn't close down the unemployment insurance system. In other words, we were pumping $500 billion into the economy for social, social policy before the government stepped up federally and said we've got to spend another $650 billion. So it is just, it's just nonsense that, that we weren't doing anything. We have spent enormous amounts of money, so much so that the OECD said there were only two countries in the world where, although the GDP went down like it went down everywhere else, there's only two countries in the world where income actually went up as GDP was going down. And we were one of the two. The U.S. was the other country. So my point is we've got to, we've poured so much stimulus into the, into the country. We've got to let, sit back and say, look, we've got our social safety net in place. We've got our EI in place. We've got all the programs of support, income support in place. There's going to be a great temptation to go and spend yet more money, right. and that's merely going to pour yet more gasoline on the inflation fire. If we want to get food prices back down to a reasonable rate and put the genie, the inflation genie, back in the bottle, we've got to let interest rates work. And the social safety net is there. People who lose their job will go and get unemployment insurance, which is we've done for 85 years with the EI program. So we shouldn't panic as we did at the beginning of the pandemic. Well said. We'll leave it on that note. Professor, we appreciate the insight as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thanks very much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Ian Lee, Associate Professor of the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. His thoughts on how paramount it is that we uh, tackle inflation and how government needs to avoid that temptation of responding to an economic slowdown with more stimulus. It'll just prolong the misery, he says. So it's, it's a tough situation as, as we face both of these problems at the same time, the problem of inflation and the coming economic slowdown here. And obviously they're linked. Well, it was a shocking bit of news over the Christmas break last year, late December. 
2021, we learned that the uh, event center deal that had been reached in 2019 between the city of Calgary and the Calgary Flames or the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation had collapsed. There was a lot of finger pointing, uh, a lot of uh, uncertainty, a lot of frustration, ultimately. Uh, I think for Calgarians who, regardless of how they felt about the deal, uh, at least had some relief in knowing that it was done and, and we could move on. And that all changed in late December. So fast forward now to uh, late October, mid to late October, I guess, depending on how you calculate it. Uh, we're starting anew. Uh, word today of a new attempt by the city and the Flames to get to an event-centered deal. The two sides have agreed to begin formal discussions, according to the press release, with a fresh start towards a new event center. So joining us uh, to talk about how we got back to this point, where things go from here, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, City Councilor Sonia Sharp, who is uh, the chair of the Event Center Committee, also, of course, represents Ward 1. Councilor Sharp, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start with a question. I mean, in your view, first of all, how, how big a deal is this? Um, I would say we're at the beginning of a very important stage. This is, um, you know, after uh, the event center committee was reestablished, I would say in April, a lot of work went into this moment. And I'm really, you know, happy to say that moving forward in the fresh start is exactly where we wanted to be today. Mm -hmm. So how did we get to this point? When we go back to, you know, what happened in December, the creation of this event center committee, what was involved in, in getting things back to this point? So if you recall, um, in January, we had a meeting where um, we heard from administration and then we came out of a meeting where council unanimously voted on bringing back the event center committee and looking for a third party to um, you know, really see if CSIC was willing to have conversations with the city um, again. And that third party, which was comprised of, um, I would say, uh, John Fisher and Guy Huntingford and Phil Swift, um, that was their mandate. And um, they would they fulfilled their mandate. They, the, the reason we got them back was to really make sure that... Um, they built that relationship and reopened the lines of communication to help us build um, relationship and establish trust. So what happens now? Mm -hmm. So we brought on uh, CA Icon, and that was the other part of the announcement today. Um, they've represented cities um, like Edmonton, San Diego, Anaheim, Dallas, Sacramento. And they, um, you know, I would say, they have the best expertise to move forward on this project and lead it for the city. And they will start um, conversations with CSIC. They will also, um, you know, have conversations with um, the city's event center team and council. And that will start shaping um, the best path forward. Okay, so well, explain the relationship. So CAA ICON is going to, to represent the city then? So CICON um, will represent the city, and um, they will they will also um, use the Altus Group Calgary office as part of their team, and they will provide the Altus Group will provide expertise to any of the future discussions. And um, we really need it at this stage because everything has changed, you know, since the last I would say um, the last set of conversations, mm -hmm. and we're at a different place. 
our economy is different. Um, we need to, you know, make sure we had lessons learned. And um, there was a, a procurement process put in place, and these folks from the ICON um, uh, were the best, I would say, like council's not involved in the procurement process, but administration um, selected them to um, move forward and represent the city. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled to have them because I really think that this is new and this is the right thing to do. What does it mean then for the events center committee? Does mm-hmm. the committee remain in, intact? Uh, how, how does the committee play a role here? So the committee, um, so the, the, the terms of reference for the committee actually, um, it ends on October 25th. And um, what we will do is, well, council will see um, a new terms of reference. And uh, we, we hope to establish um, the event center committee again on the 25th of October. And they will have a very similar, the committee will have a very similar mandate where um, they receive information from CAICON administration. They will make recommendations and decisions at a committee level, and then they will also provide recommendations to council. What kind of a timeline are we looking at here? Um, it's a good question. I would say what we really want to make sure we're doing is we're going to do this right. And, um, and, and doing that right is making sure that we, um, you know, take everything we learned from the last agreement into consideration and um, use the space we need and the time we need to work on a successful agreement. And, um, and, 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 you know, sometimes things will move very quickly and sometimes things are going to go slow. And I, and I think that what's important is um, the committee, like we were today, will be transparent when the time is right. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think there is that balance then. There's a lot of balances to be struck here. Yeah. But, but one of them is, is, you know, the idea of transparency versus the importance of not negotiating in public and, and right. doing this, you know, quietly and, and behind closed doors. Where, where do you see the balance there? Um, th- there needs to be, there always needs to be a balance. Um, any type of land transaction the city does with anybody is um, confidential. And, um, and, I, and what's important is, is that we will take also um, a guidance from, uh, you know, CICON when is right and when should we making, make sure that um, now is the time to be transparent. And, um, you know, I've committed as a committee chair up to this point and being transparent wherever we can. And today, um, as a result of that, were three recommendations we were able to discuss in camera and then bring those forward to the public. What does it mean for the the Rivers District as a whole? Does does any kind of city planning around the Rivers District have to be on hold for now? Or are there other aspects that, that can still move forward while, while this is ongoing? So, I, I mean, I can't speak to specific projects. Um, I'm not too involved in some of the stuff going on in, like, you know, um, I would say hands-on. Mm-hmm. But I would say that, you know, um, projects that are, you know, underway, our course will continue. And um, I think what's important is this is an added element um, of another project that um, that would contribute to um, another project downtown. Uh, as you say, we're at the beginning of, of this process here. It's it's a mm-hmm. big step. But, I mean, how, how optimistic are you feeling? I am, you know, I'm I'm optimistic. I, I mean, I'm. it was it was a good day today, uh, a good day for Calgary. There's a lot of great news. 
um, you know, the announcement of the basketball team, um, the economic outlook. There's so many positive things. And um, when I, you know, heard last night we were able to kind of release more of Calgarians, um, it, it just adds that element of optimism. Um, and I'm a born and raised Calgarian, and I would say that, I mean, I, I, I smiled all around, I know, in our office and for many because I think we've been waiting for this moment. And, I, you know, I would say it was a milestone that we wanted to be able to get to, and we did. All right. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. We'll be watching with great interest. Councillor Sharp, appreciate you joining Thank us you. here this afternoon. All right. Thanks so much. Take all care. Best. Uh, Ward 1 City Councillor Sonia Sharp, who is also, as mentioned, chair of the Events Centre Committee. So it sounds like this, uh, this process, basically, the negotiations, those involved will report back to the Events Centre Committee, as they say, when the time is right. So in these negotiations, the city is going to be represented by CAA ICON which, uh, as the news release says, has experience representing municipalities as well as sports teams in structuring deals and developing financial plans for event centers, stadiums, and other public uh, assembly facilities. They bring insight from many successful projects in a broad variety of markets. Okay, so again, this is kind of the end of the beginning, if you will. Everything involved to get to this point, now the negotiations must begin. Again, I think both sides have a vested interest in getting a deal done, but that doesn't guarantee that a deal is going to get done. We'll have to wait and see. My intention would be to have a a new governance structure in place within 90 days. Uh, That's Alberta's new premier. Some recent comments about uh, what what she envisions in terms of some changes coming to Alberta's health care system. Now, what she's referring to specifically is with regard to AHS. And her desire to replace the current board of directors with a health care commissioner, commissioner who would report directly to the health minister and the premier. Uh, in response to those plans, one of the board members, Deborah Apps, has submitted her resignation. A letter that reads in part, quote, I fear the premier-elect's proposals will further destabilize the workplace environment for all health care workers, adding more uncertainty when frontline staff and those who work tirelessly to lead and assist them require support and thoughtful oversight. Now, look, there is a lot of pressure on the health care system right now. That much is clear. In fact, yesterday at the Stollery Children's Hospital, there was a posted wait time of 17 hours at one point yesterday. We're expecting this to be a very rough fall and winter. So how do we make changes to health care without creating chaos at a time when we can least afford it? That's a tricky balance. But with regard to Alberta Health Services, what role does AHS itself play? What role does the board of directors play? Does it matter if a board member has resigned? Does it matter if the board is replaced with a commissioner? Would we notice the difference? I think that's been one of the the failings of of governments is really helping people understand what AHS does, what the board of directors do, and what needs to change. Uh, Anyway, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, someone with some uh, direct insight and perspective on all of this, Stephen Mandel, of course, former mayor of Edmonton, former health minister, and uh, yes, was also one of the board of directors at one point uh, with Alberta Health Services. Mr. Mandel, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for such a nice welcome. 
Well, appreciate making some time for us here today. I'm, I'm certainly curious your thoughts, just sort of big picture as a former health minister and NAHS board member, just how big the challenges are right now when it comes to addressing, you know, the problems in health care and, and trying to make some changes amid all of that. Well, I mean, there are huge problems in the healthcare system with, with staffing and allocation of funding, but you need to have a vision of where you're going to go. And by just replacing one thing with another thing, but not changing anything, what are you going to happen? What's going to happen? Nothing. So, um, you know, we have to be realistic that over the last 15 years, I think since AHS AHS has been formed, it's been the whipping boy for government, and it's an agency the government formed. I mean, this is, it's really quite ironic that everybody wants to destroy AHS, and that AHS is just trying to do a job. Um, and uh, the people who work there must be incredibly frustrated. Well, like I say, you've seen it from both sides. I mean, you know, we, yeah. we, right? We see, we do see. I mean, look, when, when, you know, announcements get made about new hospitals or expansion of surgeries, you know, government takes credit for these things. Look what we're doing to improve health care. When there are problems in health care, when things aren't working well, it seems like AHS can be an easy scapegoat. <laughs> sure, they're the, they're the whipping boy. <laughs> right. I mean, let's be fair. Government makes a decision about hospitals. NHS and will make recommendations where hospitals should be built, but then the political decisions made about those hospitals, where they should build what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it really, AHS plays a minimal role um, other than some recommendations. But when they decide they want to, for example, the government wants to put a new uh, program in place, you know, like the surgical initiative, uh, they then say, here's X number of dollars to do it. But then they tell AHS your budget next year is going to be cut by so much. So what they're saying to you, you have to take the money and put it there, and you figure a way to do the other things. And it just, it just creates so much turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, I feel terrible for the, for the people at AHS who are trying to do a job. And, uh, and, you know, the board gets picked on. The board doesn't have really any authority. They don't set the budget. They oversee the budget. I mean, there's all kinds of things in the system um, that were, were never thought of when, when the original idea to eliminate the health regents and create a board. Right. It's not gone well. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. So let's talk a bit more about that, that role. As you say, part of that role is to oversee the budget. How, how do you explain you know, what job these, these board of directors are, are there to do? Well, to begin with, the government allocates money from their budget to AHS. And that's done through a negotiation process um, that the board has very, very little to do with. Um, they get the money. Um, AHS sets up a budget, and then every quarter or every you know, X number of months, they meet and go uh, give an update as to how their expenditures based upon what their projections are. And that's what the board's function is. And then that same report, I'm assuming, uh, which would go to the minister and say, we're on line for this, not on line for that. And it really is a, a pretty minimal oversight role. Um, mm-hmm. Let's be fair. The government is the one responsible I mean, you know, we, they like to put this board in place to create a separation, saying, oh, well, you know, it's AHS having the problems. Well, let's be fair. It's AHS is allocating the monies they get to do the job they're trying to do. Um, and, you know, sometimes you have enough money to do it, sometimes you don't. And most of the time, they're struggling to, to meet the ends that the government seems deemed to be necessary to meet. I mean, is, is there a parallel to education where the government's responsible for education, but obviously school boards play an administrative role, or are there some some big differences? Oh, no, it's quite a bit different. Yeah. I, I think the school boards have a, a lot more authority, um, a lot more influence. Um, 
than, than you're referring to AH, AHS board or to, to AHS itself? Well, I mean to the board. Like, I mean, you know, the, the no, school trustees no, it's, it's, versus it's AHS a, board comp- of directors. No, big difference. It's not a comparison. Yeah. I think that the uh, the school board trustees have uh, a far more responsibility than the AHS board. I mean, the board, uh, you can replace it with a, uh, an administrator um, who could, could perform the same function. And I have no idea what, you know, the premier's ideas are for this commission. Uh, not going to change anything. I have no idea what what she's going to accomplish by putting another group of people in place of another group of people. You know, the bottom line is that there's certain MLAs that are mad because certain things are not being done in certain parts of the province and they want them done. Mm-hmm. And um, so maybe maybe the best thing to do is you create a rural uh, health hospital, rural health authority. That would maybe allocate, and then they could allocate the money to the rural areas um, that the government seems fit to want to do. But then what happens if you don't have enough money in Red Deer or Calgary or Edmonton? Do you think people aren't going to be happy? So, I mean, it's a difficult job. But, you know, you, you, you can't keep picking on AHS and say they're the problem. They're just implementing the amount of things that they're told to do by the government. Right. Ultimately, you see this as, as policy. It, it's up to government sure. policy and, and to have the funds to, to back up what they want that policy to be. That's right. And when they tell the government, you've got you know, to cut you know, $500 million out of AHS's budget or whatever the number happens to be, then they have to do it. Uh, but then they don't want anybody affected. You can't, it doesn't work that way. Right. You, know, you, cut, you cut things, somebody's affected. Now, could there be things in AHS cut? I'm sure there could be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we in the board, we, don't, you know, we really don't get involved in that. Uh, the government did a, a study a few years ago uh, when I was on the board made a lot of very good recommendations, and AHS was in the process of implementing those uh, as the government requested. There was no pushback. Uh, and they began to implement them and do things and make the changes. So they, they don't push back the government. Government say, says to do something, AHS doesn't. Let's take something specific that, that AHS has, has been faulted by some for, including apparently the new premier. You know, the idea that the, the previous premier had a goal and objective of, of getting to a certain level of ER capacity and that AHS wasn't able to deliver that. Is that the fault of AHS for not implementing the policy, or is it the fault of the government for not funding the promise? Well, you know, I, I think there's, it's, it's part of it is having capacity and estimates. So, um, you know, the emergency rooms are only so big, and they have so many people coming in. So you take, for example, in Edmonton, you know, you know whatever the hospital is, the waiting, waiting times are tremendous. Why? because there's not enough room to take care of everybody. So if you have 40 beds inside the, the, uh, the emergency room and all 40 of those are full and all the hospital beds are full and someone comes in, where do you put them? Right. How do you deal with them? So, I mean, they have to start looking at the emergency rooms and, and deal with them in a different way. You know, they have to create um, some other alternative in a close proximity to so people who have certain kinds of problems can be quickly dealt with and move to a... Uh, uh, some other kind of a facility which is less uh, uh, less invasive than the emergency. I mean, there's there's ways, but they have to focus on it. But it costs money, and you know, it's great to say we need to fix this. But until you put money into it and you expand the capacity to go from 40 beds to to 140 beds or whatever the number might be, it's going to have the same problem. You're going to have unfortunately people going to the Stollery or to Calgary's uh, Children's Hospital and waiting. Um, it's, you know, I mean, if I'm a parent of a three-year-old child, I'm panic-stricken and I can't get in. Um, but the problem is they have to allocate money. Yeah. This is all about money. 
money, then you hire more people. You have to have facilities. It takes time to build them. So meantime, though, um, you know, whether it's the current board of directors, whether it's a new commission or commissioner, that's not likely to have much difference one way or the other on, on the delivery of health care in Alberta. None. I don't think it'll make any difference whatsoever. I mean, the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, in, in health care is that governments are elected every four years. Right. But you need to look 20 or 25 years in the future in the healthcare system as what it's going to look like. What do you need to design? And it's difficult for government to make the adjustments saying, well, we have to plan for 25 years down the road because they're not elected in 25 years. They're elected every four years. So they have to show things that they're doing to help, help, help the healthcare system move forward. But what is it going to look like in 25 years? How many hospitals are going to need? How are we going to deal with the emergency rooms? You know, all the kinds of issues that, uh, that I think that answers are available if, um, if governments are willing to work with the various agencies, whether it's AHS or, or Alberta Health, to put a plan in place. Um, it's not an easy solution. Um, and so it's, um, but just automatically changing a board and calling it a commission, that's not going to make any difference at all. I guess we'll find out in due course. We'll leave it there. Uh, Stephen Mandel, really appreciate your perspective on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. You take care. You as well. All right, there you go. That's uh, Stephen Mandel, of course, uh, former mayor of Edmonton, was uh, one-time health minister uh, under the PC government, uh, and then uh, served a stint on the board of directors for AHS, which, at least according to what the premier said, will, will soon no longer exist. Her plan is to replace the board of directors with a commissioner who will report directly to the health minister and to the premier. Look, obviously, I mean, you know, the idea that the health minister and the premier would have a direct say over uh, the health care system, well, obviously, look, it's provincial jurisdiction. The government decides health policy. So I guess we should figure out, well, what do we want? Do we want an arm's length board or do we want something that's more closely tied to the government? Do we need Alberta Health Services? Welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you. Uh, you know, one of the benefits uh, of having almost summer-like weather in October is that you get the warmth that you'd normally get in the summer, but you don't get the mosquitoes. Uh, it was another bad year for mosquitoes, and some people get it worse than others, right? It, it seems as though mosquitoes are drawn to some people more than others. Like I said earlier, you know, when I'm out uh, walking at night with my wife, they sure seem to like me. Uh, and why is that, right? And there have been all kinds of attempts to try to explain that. Is it something that we're eating? Is it some other uh, factor? Maybe uh, colors we wear, maybe body wash that we use, or, or something else. What's going on that seems to draw mosquitoes more so to some people than to others? Well, some new research, a new paper published this month in the journal Cell, finds that yes, some people are mosquito magnets. And this has to do with uh, the unique scent profile we all have that involves several different chemical compounds. So which are the ones that mosquitoes seem to like? Why is it they like them? And is there anything we can do about it? So some interesting questions uh, to explore here. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is one of the authors uh, of this report, uh, Dr. Maria uh, Elena de Obaldia, who is a uh, neurogenesis behavior postdoctorate at Rockefeller University, uh, as mentioned, one of the authors of this report, Dr. de Obaldia, welcome to the program. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so th this is a question that's been around for, for quite a while, hasn't it? Yes, it has. 
Why is it so um, hard to answer a question like this? So I think there's a few reasons. One of the really important reasons is that we don't, we haven't completely characterized the entire set of molecules that are found on human skin. So therefore, it's difficult to determine which are the most important. There were some, basically, we took advantage of some new technology um, allowing for genetic modification of mosquitoes to give us more clues about what would be important. Right, because at some level it just seems, I mean, you know, people are people, right? And we, we all have blood and mosquitoes are, are looking for right. blood. And, and so in a simplistic way, there shouldn't be a difference. But obviously there's, there's a lot more going on here. Yes, that's a really good point. So a lot of people have speculated that maybe there's some difference in our blood that leads mosquitoes to pursue some of us more vigorously than others. However, all of our blood is essentially equally good to the female mosquito. She uses the blood to get protein to lay eggs. And we're all a good meal for her. Um, However, some, she will pursue, uh, you know, some of us more than others based on our odor. And we are not the first people to have, you know, confirmed that this is due to odor and studied this in the laboratory. But we are, I believe, the first people to apply new genetic tools to this question. So Mm -hmm. to use genetically modified mosquitoes to get insights into what type of compounds we needed to be studying, um, which might, uh, which the mosquitoes are paying attention to. Right. And so what, what are those then? So we, based on uh, findings from our, from the Vossall lab at Rockefeller University, as well as other labs, um, we knew that mosquitoes lacking a type of, olfactory or smell receptor that senses volatile acids were very compromised in their ability to be attracted to humans in laboratory assays. And so we profiled, we first, you know, so we found that um, if we looked at acids on the skin of humans who were either extremely attractive or unattractive to mosquitoes, the people who were very attractive, the mosquito magnets, had more carboxylic acids on their skin. And what are and these so this acids? Was consistent mm-hmm. with, um, you know, it's it's very suggestive that we found that um, it's consistent with the mutant results that I described. So these these carbox uh, carboxylic acids. Um, what what are these? So these are the molecules that we uh, found to be different are um, they're basically kind of greasy molecules. Um, So they have an an acid group at one end and then a long hydrocarbon chain that gives them this kind of greasy fatty property. Um, And they're uniquely enriched on the skin of humans relative to other animals. And so they may be produced by our skin microbiome and or they can also be cleaved um, 
by bacteria from triglycerides that are produced on our skin. So humans have, you know, if you touch the side of your nose, um, you'll feel this greasy substance called sebum. Mm -hmm. And the composition of this skin secretion in humans is very unique. And so when I started this work, I was reading about um, some work actually done in the 60s um, characterizing the sebum of humans and other animals. And this comes into play. So this comes into play basically because humans are especially attractive to the species of mosquito that we were studying. So, you know, how we got into all of this um, study of studying the magnets was to, um, because we were interested in what is it about humans in general that is so attractive. And we thought a good way to study that would be to um, look at natural variation in attractiveness among humans. Right. So humans are unique in that we produce these acids at much higher levels, as you say, than other animals. But I guess from human to human, you know, the amount we produce does vary. So it's not really something we're in control of. And I guess there's not really a, an effective way of knowing what your own production levels are like. Right. I think, um, you know, the way that we used to, to arrive at these conclusions was fairly... Um, required some sophisticated equipment and help from our collaborators, Justin Cross and Dan Baimler at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, so this is a technology called gas chromatography mass spec. So it's not something the everyday person has access to. Um, however, um, you, and you were asking me, what can you do about it? I don't, unfortunately, I don't think there's a whole lot that you can do about the levels of carboxylic acids on your skin that may make you a mosquito magnet. Um, however, potentially in the future, we could develop better ways to modulate this, um, such as longer lasting repellents. We have really good repellents, such as DEET, yeah. um, but I think that we really need repellents that are longer lasting that basically stay on the skin um, for weeks at a time. Um, and so this is something, you know, that people would have to be really comfortable with, you know, um, using such as, you know, it could be a cream or a soap that you apply as part of your normal life. The acids on the skin, I, I should mention, um, probably play really important roles. So it's commonly cited that the acidic nature of our skin um, very much limits what types of microbes can grow there. Mm -hmm. So it prevents us from being colonized by pathogens. Interesting. So it's actually a good thing to yeah. have these acids. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, for some purposes. Yeah, just not for mosquito purposes. Right. right. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Ellen, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you for your great questions. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That's a study co-author, Dr. Ellen Diobaldi, a senior scientist at Rockefeller University, has mentioned uh, this study published in the journal Cell, uh, C-E-L-L, -L, this month. Uh, so the bad news is there's not much you can do about it. If you happen to produce slightly higher levels of carboxylic acids, 
So it seems as though people who do produce those at a slightly higher level are going to be more attractive to mosquitoes. That's what they're sensing. That's what's drawing them. Obviously, there are ways of countering that through, you know, mosquito spray, etc. But uh, to understand why some people seem to attract more mosquitoes than others, this seems to explain it, they say. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.